Welcome to another evening lecture with Francis Tavern Museum. Remember, if you have any questions during this lecture, please leave them in the Q&A box. We will be monitoring that box during the lecture, so don't worry about saving your questions till the end. We will try to get to many, uh, as many as we can, and then the views of the speaker are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York or its Francis Tavern Museum. Uh, let me introduce tonight's speaker. Don, Don N. Hagis studies common soldiers who served in the American Revolution. His books include The, Re the Revolution's Last Men, The Soldiers Behind the Photographs, and British Soldiers, American War. He is an engineer for a major medical device manufacturer and lives in Providence, Rhode Island. I will now be handling, handing this over to Don. Okay, thank you very much. Um, really happy to be here, and I'm especially happy to get to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is British soldiers who served in the American Revolution. And in fact, it's so much of a favorite subject that I wrote another book about it. And that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight. So I'll be giving a quick moment to share my screen and see if I can do this part properly. You should all be able to see a book cover on your screen right now. It is called Noble Volunteers, the British Soldiers Who Fought the American Revolution. Now, the book itself is about... 120 or so thousand words long, and it's 300 pages words long. So I'm going to be spending about half of this lecture talking about the title. Well, the title, Noble Volunteers, let's look at the second part there, the British soldiers who fought the American Revolution. Well, this book is very specifically about the soldiers, not the officers in the British Army. So I carved out one portion of the army rather than talk about all aspects of it here. When I say the soldiers, I'm talking about the private soldiers, the drummers, the fifers, the corporals, and the sergeants. Those are pretty much all of the ranks you have in the British Army during this time period who are not officers. So it's a little simpler than it is today. And the book does talk a little bit about officers in terms of giving officers perspectives on the soldiers. And we talk also about private soldiers and corporals and sergeants who eventually became officers. Not many men did that, but some did. The book is also focused on the infantry. British Army during this time period consisted of foot soldiers and horse soldiers, cavalrymen, and artillerymen. But most of the soldiers who fought in America during the American Revolution were infantry. Hence, this book is focused mostly on infantry. There are is material in here that applies to all soldiers, but we're really specific about one type. And emphasis in this book is on diversity, not commonality. So you will find some studies that try to look and say, well, we have 50,000 soldiers in the British Army who served in America. Let's look at what they have in common. And I think, okay, that's very well and good, but think about what everybody listening to this lecture has in common. Well, we'd say, well, everybody has some interest in history, right? And everybody is going to buy this book and read it, right? But beyond that, what do we all have in common? And more importantly, if somebody was going to write a book and talk about you or you, how good a picture would you get if we talked only about what you have in common with everybody else? It's what's different about each person that makes them really interesting. And that's what I try to focus on in here when I talk about um, the life of, say, a British sergeant or the duties of a drummer. I try not to generalize it too much, but say, look, there's a lot of different cases here. Not everybody in the army was the same. Um, to emphasize this even more, I put up the covers of two other books on relate, that are related to this topic. There are a few good books out there. Both of these books are very good, but the reason I put up the pictures, we have one here called Redcoat, The British Soldier in the Age of Horse and Musket, and the other called The British Soldier in America. And I look at both of these and I say, the British soldier? There was one? I think there were more than one. And they were not all the same. Now, the other part of the title of the book is Noble Volunteers. That's the main title. And when I was working this up and told people, it took a long time to settle on a title for the book. When I settled on this one, people said, that's an odd title for a book like this. Well, if you read the book, you find it's not so odd. During this time period, during the American Revolution, there were four ways 
that a man could get into the British Army? Well, one way was to volunteer. Another way was to be born into the army. So your father's a soldier and you're born in America somewhere on campaign. You go into the army as well. You could go into the army as an alternative to prison and you could be pressed into the army. Now, if you've read anything about the British military during this time period, you may be familiar at least with these last two options. I'm gonna talk about them a little more. The book goes into a lot of detail on all these things. I'm gonna address them right now just briefly and in opposite order of importance. So when I start with the thing that was the least important and the least common way to get into the British army during the time period of the American Revolution, that is going to be impressment. There's a lot of writers make a big deal about impressment when really it was only a small and not very important thing during this time period. Pressing soldiers into the British Army during the American Revolution was allowed only during a brief period between June and May of 1780. Actually started right at the very end of May 1778. So there was a two-year period when it was possible to be pressed into the Army. When did the American Revolution begin in terms of the fighting and the warfare? Everybody knows that was April 1775. And when did it end? Well, we all know that was sometime in 1783, depending on which date you wanna choose. So the war was eight years long and there were only two years of that eight when it was even possible for a man to be pressed into the army. And there were really strict rules about pressing soldiers in the army. There were only certain places you could press men, only certain times of year. It wasn't just a free for all where the army could go out and drag in anybody they wanted. So during the two years that pressing men into the British Army during the American Revolution was legal at all, only about 10% of all of the soldiers recruited into the army at that time were pressed. Not 10% of the whole army, but just 10% of the new recruits during those two years. The first pressed men arrived in America in October of 1779, so four years into the war, and only about 5% of the men who arrived in America that year were pressed men. Now, the book has these numbers in more detail, but that works out to fewer than 150 men that year who were pressed. So for the American Revolution, fewer than 1% of all the soldiers who served in America were pressed into the army. And even at that, only men who were joined in America after 1779 might have been pressed in the army. It was hardly anybody. The most in any regiment was about 37 men, a regiment being about 500 men. So even though there's a lot of writing has been put into this idea of soldiers being pressed into the British army, it was a really rare thing. It had no real consequence on the nature and the character and the operation of the British Army in America. Now let's look at another way to get in the army, an alternative to prison. Well, you could join the army as an alternative to prison if you were charged only with a petty crime, not a major crime. So if you murdered somebody or if you committed some really bad type of robbery or some awful violent crime, you were not going to be offered the alternative of joining the army because not being a bunch of complete idiots, the people in the army recognized that you probably wouldn't make a very good soldier. So, but if men were charged with petty crimes and somewhat passive types of crimes, they could be offered enlistment in the army as an alternative to prison. So we have crimes like bigamy, petty theft, burglary, failure to pay child support, things that are still crimes today were crimes then, and you could, if you were convicted of one of these things being offered, been offered the opportunity to join the army. Now the army had the right of refusal. So you as a convicted person are offered the option of joining the army. And if you say, yes, I wanna do that. And the army says, eh, we don't really want you for any reason. You're not going into the army. During the time of the American Revolution, only a few hundred men went into the army in this way. Again, the book has a lot more detail and statistics on it. This is a few hundred men in the entire British army. 
And of those, only a subset ended up serving in America during the revolution. So we have a very tiny fraction of the whole army got in, uh, whole army got in through this avenue. Even more important, this was a voluntary way to go into the army. A criminal was offered the choice of going to the army or going to prison. It wasn't legal to just force him to go into the army. So he may have looked at it as a choice between two bad options, but it was still a choice. Now, was there a way to get into the army? We've looked at impressment and said hardly anybody joined the army that way. We've looked at alternative to going to prison and seen that hardly anybody joined the army that way. How about being born in the army? Well, we don't have solid statistics on this, unfortunately. The book has some examples. A military writer at the time talked about children of soldiers and said, from this little nursery, some excellent non-commissioned officers may be produced. Why non-commissioned officers? Well, if a child is born in a military environment, spends his entire life in a military environment, he's probably going to understand it really, really well, and he may even feel a strong attachment to it. Good crop of non-commissioned officers. We don't have precise numbers. I've been able to document only a few dozen. It's probably quite a lot more than that, but I can't say how many. But this is important too to recognize that if you were a child of a soldier, when you were old enough to join the army, it was still your option. There was nothing that required you to join the army. And in fact, in the book, I've got an example of a young man who was born in New Jersey in 1758 or 1760 to a soldier, stayed in America until his early teen years, went back to England with the army and then chose not to join the army. And he explains why in, in, in a memoir that he wrote. But so it's still, I've shown three different ways to get into the army now and two of the three were voluntary. And all three don't account for the majority of soldiers in the army. So what was the most common way to get into the army during the era of the American Revolution? Well, that would be volunteers. We've seen hardly any pressed men, hardly any convicts, a few children. So the vast majority of British soldiers who served in America during the American Revolution were volunteers. And of those volunteers, the majority of them were career soldiers. They were men who joined the army, not just for some fixed duration, but as a career. There were men who joined for a fixed duration, but they were not the majority. So how do you get men to join the army during this time period? Well, you use recruitment language. You market the heck out of it. You make it sound like a great option. You put up posters that say things like this one, all gentlemen volunteers who are able and willing to serve his majesty in the 45th Regiment of Foot and who have courage enough to fight for their country. Let them go to the recruiting officer. Uh, an advertisement in the 1775 newspaper for the 33rd Regiment of Foot said, any able-bodied young man who is fired with ambition has a roving disposition and whose spirit soars above the dull sameness of staying home. Wow, that's me. That's, that's what young men wanna see during this time period when they're, they're farm laborers or apprentice weavers or have other relatively mundane jobs, but, but their spirit soars above the dull sameness of staying home. These men only will be taken who promise to be a credit to their officers and an honor to their country. Well, doesn't, don't you just want to go out and enlist in the army right now after reading that? This is the kind of thing that roused the spirits of men to go into an all-volunteer force during the 1760s and 1770s and early 1780s. Here's another recruiting poster. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it starts out and says, Arouse Britons for the honor and glory of old England. Now is the moment, my noble-minded countrymen. Now is the crisis of our country's fate. Fly to the standard of our sovereign. And on and on and on it goes. Down near the end, it says, the sons of freedom are alone worthy to support the honor of old England. And the conduct of the noble regiment of British volunteers shall prove that Englishmen never wanted courage to defend their wives, their sweethearts, or their firesides. Look at how they're touching on these men now. 
And in here, I found this phrase, the Noble Regiment of British Volunteers. That's where I got the title Noble Volunteers for this book. This is the kind of language that these men who joined this all volunteer army of career soldiers were responding to when they enlisted to serve before the American Revolution and during the American Revolution. So why would a man enlist in the army? Well, if all that inspirational language isn't enough for you, let's look for other reasons. There are some books that will tell you generalized things like, well, well, in times of economic difficulty, men turned to join the army because they couldn't find other work. Well, if that's the case, then if we read writings of British soldiers who served the army at this time, we should find them writing things like, oh my gosh, I was out of work. I had no other alternative, but the army gave me a chance and I joined. Odd thing is that so far, as of this writing, I found 35 examples where soldiers actually wrote down their reason for enlisting in the army. 35 isn't enough to do statistics, but it's all I've got to work with so far. And of those 35, almost all of them were employed at the time they chose to enlist in the army, or they had some other means of support. They were from a family that was reasonably well-to-do or what have you, and yet they joined the army anyway. Not a single one of them gave unemployment as a reason for joining the army. Now, this doesn't mean that thousands of others didn't join the army because they were unemployed, but so far I'd like to find at least somebody who said, I joined the army because I couldn't find any other job. So far I can't find that. That suggests that there must be other reasons to join the army besides just the simple thing of saying, gosh, I'm out of work and I need something else to do. Well, what reasons would those be? I will tell you, I've written some down, not all 35, but here's a sampling of them. There was a man who joined the 12th Regiment of Dragoons and then later transferred into an infantry regiment and served in America. And he said, the king's golden guineas in the form of a bounty won my heart. Okay, so he joined the army for the enlistment bonus. Ever hear of anybody doing that today? Sure. A man joined the 20th Regiment of Foot, and he said, he's talking about himself and some colleagues, he says, the fair speeches of the British recruiting officers brought us to believe that the army was the best place. Well, that's no surprise. You just saw some of the language of recruiting officers, and you probably all think the army must be the best place after that, right? John Pink joined the 33rd Regiment of Foot. He was a working tailor. He had plenty of work himself, but he was persuaded by a young man belonging to the army that the army was a very advantageous place for a tailor. And you know what? He was right. If you read the book, you'll get a lot more about tailors and tradesmen in the army and how they could prosper there. Robert Hall joined the 43rd Regiment of Foot, not from want, but from inclination. So he was doing fine, but he wanted to become a soldier. William Burke said, I had a wish to become a soldier. A man whose first name I don't know, probably William Griffith said, I could not resist it, though I could give no particular reason. So think about that. Young men who just feel like, I just want to join the army. I can't really tell you why. It's just something I want to do. Well, again, this still happens today, right? With our all-volunteer army. Some people just feel determined that that's, their, that's what they want to pursue. A man named Thomas Sullivan wrote, he joined to satisfy an inclination strongly bent on rambling. So here's a man who wanted to travel and see the world. Andrew Scott, who was from Scotland of the 80th Regiment, said it afforded me an opportunity of seeing the world, something he wouldn't have if he just worked the land in his native Scotland. Valentine Duckett said he joined the army because my stepmother and I could not agree. Imagine that. You're mother dies, your father remarries, you hate your new stepmom, you run away and join the army. Probably has never happened since, right? Jonathan Sawyer joined the army after being disappointed in courtship. Again, no surprises here. And finally, James Andrew joined a regiment that served in Scotland because he wanted to be freed from the clamors of a wife. So we've got 
a range of different reasons, but we do see they start to fall into some categories here. And none of these are reasons that you could just deduce by looking at what I call metadata, just by looking at economic conditions or other social conditions during the time period. They're all very personal reasons. They're all very personal reasons that still resonate to this day about why people choose a career in the military over a career in the civilian world. And these are the British soldiers who were fighting in the time of the American Revolution. There were three distinct periods of enlistment in the army. Again, the book covers this in great detail. Many of the soldiers who fought in the American Revolution were already in the army when the war broke out. So the soldiers who marched out of Boston in April of 1775, for example, in the day fighting broke out, they didn't come to America to fight a war. They came to America to try to prevent a war from starting. But lo and behold, the war started anyway. So we look a lot at British soldiers who are peacetime soldiers who then find themselves fighting in a war. They were career soldiers. They served until they were no longer fit for service. And then a war breaks out. Now the army starts recruiting just for soldiers to fight in America. The incentives improve and men who enlist during this time period can be discharged when the war ends. So you can enlist for a fixed term. Again, most of the army is still made up of these career soldiers, but now we're gonna add additional men and we've got some new incentives. And then these men can also get a land grant when they're discharged. So there's a strong incentive for a man working as a farm laborer in England, say, to join the army serve a stint until the end of the war, and then he gets a hundred acres of his own land. That's a pretty strong incentive because he would probably never be able to own his own land any other way. Then in 1778, a very interesting thing happens that really changes the character of recruiting during the American Revolution. And that was, all you American Revolution scholars know what happened in 1778, right? France joins the war. Suddenly Great Britain has an enemy who is not 3,000 miles away, but an enemy who you can see on a clear day across the English Channel. So we have a global war. And then we get even more changes to the enlistment activities. We have all the same incentives as above, higher bounties, discharge and war land grants, but we also do a new thing just for a short period called pressing men. Oops, I didn't even write that down here for some reason. So for a short period, we tried pressing men into the army. It turns out to be disastrously bad for the army and for the civilian population. We offer even higher enlistment bounties. The point here is that we can't just characterize all the British soldiers who served in America under a single umbrella because conditions changed for the army. Different men enlisted at different times for different reasons and under different circumstances. So I broke this book up into three parts to acknowledge this. A lot of books that try to write about British soldiers during the war make the mistake of homogenizing all of the soldiers and mishing and mashing information in ways that ends up mischaracterizing the soldiers. So I looked and said, we've got to separate out the soldiers who were already in the army before the war began, and then ended up going through this process of preparing for a war, preparing for a war that they were hoping to prevent, but a war that happened anyway. Then we have to look at the army during the wartime, not only the new men who came into it and how they were trained differently than soldiers who had already been in the army, but also how these soldiers who joined an army in peacetime adapted to being at war. And then the third part of the book talks about the ends of their careers. What happened to a British soldier when he left the army, when he was no longer fit for service? Maybe he was disabled in the army or maybe he had served 30 or 35 years and was just too worn out to serve anymore. What happened to an army that expanded during the time of war and it goes back to peacetime. What happens to the extra soldiers who are no longer needed? So the book covers all these different things and it spends most of the detail on parts one and two, the soldiers who were already in the army when the war started and how this onset of war affected them. And then how soldiers 
lived and behaved during the war itself. So I'll just take one example. Each part of the book has a many different facets. We talk about how soldiers lived and how they were fed and what they did in their free time and how they were trained and all sorts of things. But I'm just gonna give one example from each section of the book. The first part, preparing for war, talks about recruiting during peacetime. It gives some demographics and background about the structure of the army, just to put things in context. It teaches you about the soldiers' ranks and how they were paid and trained and what you could expect as a career path. And in particular, we go into a lot of detail about how the soldiers who were in America before the war began prepared for the onset of war. Again, a war they were hoping to prevent, but they did prepare for it. It talks about physical fitness, target practice, training in larger organizations of soldiers, which they didn't usually do in peacetime. And I just mentioned the word target practice. Anybody here ever intended a battle reenactment or talked to a reenactor? If you have done, or if you have read a lot about the American Revolution, you may have heard it said that British soldiers did not aim their muskets. You may have even seen it said that British soldiers were taught not to aim their muskets. Well, let me tell you now that these people were not a bunch of dum-dums. They had figured out a long time ago, they'd been using firearms for a hundred years, and they had figured out that if you aim at what you want to shoot at, you stand a much better chance of hitting it. How do we know this? Well, we see and we get examples in the book of soldiers doing what's called firing at marks, which today we would call target practice. This is where we get the term marksmanship from firing at a mark. We find in the manual that's used to train British soldiers during this time period says, when you point the gun at something, you point it with the left eye shut and look along the barrel with the right eye from the breech pin to the muzzle. That sounds a lot like aiming, doesn't it? And in fact, if you look at this diagram over here, this is from another British Army training manual during the time period, it lists all the different parts of the gun. Way up at the top, near the end of the musket barrel, it's got item E. And sadly, if you talk to a lot of reenactors, they will tell you that that thing is called a bayonet lug, and it's used to fasten the bayonet to the barrel. Well, it does help connect the bayonet to the barrel of the musket. But if you look at the British Army training manual from the 18th century at item E, you find that that thing is called a sight, which really implies that it is used for doing what? Aiming the musket. And we find, looking through this book, that British soldiers in America in the year before the Revolutionary War actually broke out on April 19, 1775, these soldiers fired, did a lot of live target practice, fired over 80 rounds per man over a four-month period. If you're in the modern army, 80 rounds doesn't sound like much, but if you fired a flintlock musket, you'll recognize that 80 rounds of live ammunition is quite a bit to become reasonably proficient at hitting a target you aimed at. That was a bit of long and drawn out. The book itself has only three or four pages on this, but it talks about all kinds of other aspects of training and adapting to being a British soldier in America at a time when tensions are building and it looks like war is coming. Second part of the book talks about the wartime army. This is the longest part of the book. It talks about how recruiting and training changed because there was a war on. Talks about how tactics changed and adapted to, to fighting in America. Talks about where soldiers lived. We have all seen pictures of encampments of tents. But it turns out soldiers spent a lot of their time living in places other than tents. They lived in barns, they lived in outbuildings, they lived in wigwams made out of brush and straw, and they lived rolled up in blankets under the stars a lot of the time. Book talks about food and hygiene and health and what soldiers did when they were not on duty. It talks about how pay and promotion changed during times of war. So let's just again carve out just one little detail from the book that we talk about in the subject of health and hygiene. Was it possible to survive a wound from a battle? Well, we certainly might have the idea that during the time period, the medical activities were pretty crude. 
And odds were pretty good that if you got your arm or your leg shot off by a musket ball or had a musket ball go through your body, you were probably going to die. I thought this very same thing until I compiled real data for this book. And I was surprised at what the information told me. One of the most exciting things about a researcher is when you develop a hypothesis, you look at real data, and the data actually tells you something that you did not expect. So for one of several examples, I have a British regiment that served in Rhode Island in August of 1778. They were involved in a really big battle. They had 11 men killed and somewhere between 50 and 56 men wounded, which proportionally is quite a lot for a battle during this time period. This is out of about 400 men committed to the battle. And of those 50 to 56 killed, I thought this is a good, or wounded rather, this is a good sample to look at because this regiment didn't do any fighting for the next several months. So I can just isolate these wounded men. I know one of them died because there's a specific document that says he died of his wounds after battle. Over the next four months, I have muster rolls that tell me which men in the regiment died, but they don't tell me the cause of death. So I know some men died. They may have died of wounds or maybe they died for some other reason, but at least I got something to work with. So out of this 50 to 56 men wounded in the battle, I've one I know died. And of that, only three other men died of any causes over the next four months. I don't know why they died. Maybe it was of wounds, maybe it wasn't. But the point here is that almost all of the men who were wounded survived which surprised me. And it turns out, looking at several other examples from other battles, that was what happened most of the time. If you were a British soldier and you were wounded in battle, you were probably gonna survive those wounds rather than die in a hospital. Totally unexpected to me, but that's what the data tells us. This is the kind of thing you find in this book that talks about being a British soldier at war in America. Finally, end careers, speaking of which, we're getting toward the end of the lecture, so hang in there with me. How could you end your career in the British Army as a career soldier? Well, you could die. That'll do it. You could desert from the Army, and something around 5% of British soldiers did leave the Army that way. You could become a prisoner of war and then never return from captivity, which simply means, I don't know what happened to you. Some of these people who never came back may have died in captivity. Other ones may have just chosen to settle in America. We can't be sure about every single one. Soldiers got displaced from their regiments during the war. So a man might be a prisoner of war from a regiment that's in New York, and he escapes and makes his way to, say, Canada. Now the British Army in New York has no idea what happened to it, but the British Army in Canada does. But more soldiers got worn out or somehow incapacitated during their service. Eventually, it's determined that they're no longer able to serve as soldiers and they get discharged from the army. Let's look quickly at an example in 1783 of the force reduction. 1783 was the year that hostilities officially ended and the British army eventually packed up and went home, leaving New York City in November of 1783. You know, one of the regiments that left New York City in November of 1783 was the 22nd Regiment of Foot. In September of that year, so they're getting ready to leave America, they have to make some changes in their force structure. So among the things they do is they discharge 66 soldiers while they're, they're stationed in New York, right there in Manhattan, and they've got to reduce the size. So 66 of the men are eligible. And they say, you guys are free to leave. You can walk away. You can do anything you want. Now, your obligation to the army is over. And you're in America, land of milk and honey, newly independent, lots of opportunities. What do you suppose these men did? Well, of these 66 men who are allowed to leave the army and do anything they want, 47 of them immediately re-enlist in the army in the 54th Regiment of Foot, which is going not back to Great Britain, but to Canada. What does this tells me? Well, this tells me that being a soldier in the British Army during this time period 
couldn't have been such a terrible job as a lot of literature makes it out to be. Otherwise, why would three quarters of the men who were told, you can go now, we're done, you don't, we don't need you anymore at all, turn around and say, oh, but we're gonna join the army again. We're gonna go to sunny Nova Scotia now. Well, for some reason they did. Sadly, not a single one of these men or any other soldier I found has written down a reason why he joined the army again. So I, I can only guess, but I'm guessing it had to do with stability. It had to do with steady pay. It had to do with camaraderie. It had to do with the idea that having been a soldier for many years, this is the life they knew and trusted. Also, if you re-enlisted, you got another enlistment bounty, which is equal to about a month and a half's pay. So, so there's an incentive there. But again, without somebody writing down and telling me specifically what their reasons are, I don't like to guess what they might have been. These are the kinds of things we learn about British soldiers when we read this book. I'm going to close by just introducing you to four British soldiers. I'll try to be quick about this. And again, this is to give an example of the diversity of the types of men who fought in the British Army. Throughout the book, there are hundreds of different individual soldiers mentioned. One of them is James Renison. He was born in 1743 in Kendall, County Westmoreland in Northern England. He was five feet, six inches tall, had hazel eyes, brown hair, swarthy complexion, and a round visage. Almost feels like you know him now, doesn't it? He was a weaver before he joined the army in 1759. So he was 20 whatever years old, whatever that works out. Okay, he was a fairly young guy, joined the army at 16. Um, by 1775, he was a sergeant. He marched out from Boston on April 19th, 1775, and he was wounded on that very day in the thigh. But this did not prevent him from marching out to Bunker on Bunker Hill just two months later. So he was in two battles in the first two months of the war, got wounded once. And then a really neat thing happened for him in December of 1775, his regiment got sent back to England. So the regiment had been in America for several years before the war began. He serves in a battle, he gets wounded, serves in another big battle, then he gets to go home. But guess what? His war is not over. His regiment gets sent to Gibraltar. And Gibraltar was put under siege by French and Spanish forces for four years, one of the longest sieges in British military history. And this guy, this veteran of Lexington and Concord was there the whole time. And he stayed in the army until 1788. He was 45 years old with 29 years of service in the army and he was granted an army pension. So what does he do now? He does what hundreds and thousands of British soldiers did. What British soldiers who were veterans of the American Revolution did in droves. These men were career soldiers. He enlisted in the army again, and he served in another regiment until 1791, when he was discharged and put back onto the pension rolls. What do you think he does then? What does a career soldier do during this time period? He joined the army again, he joined the 95th Regiment, Sometime during his whole career, we don't know exactly when, he lost a middle finger. He was discharged from the army again in 1797. So he's back off of active duty, back on the pension rolls. What do you suppose he does next? Well, he does what British soldiers do. He re-enlisted in another British Corps called an invalid battalion, which is now for soldiers who aren't going to be sent overseas or to rigorous duty, but they can garrison local fortifications. He garrisoned a fortification in Chester. He stayed in the army until 1802, discharged at the age of 59 after more than 40 years in the army. So again, this is just one veteran from two battles in the American Revolution it's one tiny little part of a very long career for this man. He was called back to go on active duty again in 1803, but now the army said, well, you know what? 60 years old, you're no longer fit for service. Now, the challenge I have when I want to show a soldier's career, <clears throat> it's not finding a man with a long career like that. It's deciding which one to present because, again, this is not an unusual career for a British soldier during this time period. 
many veterans of the American Revolution had careers as soldiers that were 30 or 40 years long. So the eight year American Revolution was only a small part of their military career. Let's look at a very different man. Let's look at James Joseph Dunkerley. If you're an art student, you may possibly have heard of him. He was born in London in 1752. He was the son of a London jeweler. So he's from a nice well-off family, but he joins the army. We don't know why, but he joined the 38th Regiment of Foot. That regiment was sent to Boston in 1774 and he deserted in early 1776. What does he do now? He's got a few years under his belt as a soldier. He joins the army, but he joins the American army, becomes an officer in an artillery regiment for a couple of years. And then he resigns his commission because he says, if I ever get caught by the enemy, I'm in big trouble because not only am I a deserter, but I actually joined the enemy army and got a commission as an officer. I will be very unpopular, so I'm going to stay out of the service now. What does he do next? Well, he happened to be a very talented painter. He became a miniatures painter and a drawing instructor in Boston. In fact, he painted that picture right there. And if you look in good American art books, you'll find his name in it. He was one of the premier miniature portrait painters in early America. Moved to Jamaica and prospered as a painter, died there in 1806. Again, you can look, us up, look up his name. There's a signature, one picture he painted, which some people speculate is a self-portrait. We don't know that for sure. Here's another man, James Cuff. Born in 1755, Ireland, six feet tall, light hair, light complexion. He was a barber before he joined the army. Enlisted in the 62nd Regiment of Foot in 1774. He was captured in Saratoga in October 1777. Now he's a prisoner of war. What do you suppose he does? He escapes from prison. Okay, that's what a lot of British prisoners of war do. And then he enlisted in the army again, but he enlisted in the American army in the 16th Massachusetts Regiment. Okay. So he must have looked and said, well, I don't like the cause of tyranny. I'm going to join the cause of liberty, right? He joined the American army. And what did he do? Oh, 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 he deserted. He deserted after only a few months. Well, maybe he's not such a good patriot after all. Oh, okay, wait, wait, he came back. He deserted, but he came back. He joined the American army again. Maybe he's all right. By 1780 in September, he was serving in Bergen County, New Jersey in the 16th Massachusetts Regiment, and he deserted again between Paramus and New Bridge. And he got into New York and he joined the British Army yet again. Well, a lot of soldiers during the American Revolution did this. Americans deserted and joined the British Army. British soldiers deserted and joined the American Army. Then they deserted again and they went back and forth. And Surprisingly, quite a few hundred soldiers on both sides did this sort of thing. He stayed in the army and he starts to look like a pretty good, reliable British soldier. He goes back to England with his regiment in November 1783. And then he deserted from the British army again in 1784 in England. Don't know what happened to him after that. Again, looks like an unusual career, but Quite a lot of men did this sort of thing too. Now I've looked at three different soldiers so far and they're nothing like each other, right? This is why we need to have a book that talks about the diversity in the army because you can't characterize all soldiers as being the same. I'm gonna look at one more. This is picture here, this document is called a discharge. And this is where we get a lot of this kind of personal information about soldiers. If when you left the army, you were given a piece of paper that said you are officially released from your obligation of service in the army. You can't be taken up as a deserter or anything as long as you have this paper with you. It's the discharge of Dennis Green of the 5th Regiment of Foot, who was in their Grenadier Company and was discharged in June of 1783. And if we look carefully at it and get a close up, if you can read this well, it's a printed form with things filled out. It says Dennis Green, late a soldier in this company of this regiment. He was born near the town of Mallow in the county of Cork, which you all know is in Ireland. 31 years of age, size five feet, 11 and a quarter inches. By occupation, a laborer has served in this regiment for 18 years and two months. So that's so nice. Gives a little profile to men, useful information. 
But I picked this guy out because of a fascinating annotation at the bottom of his discharge written by an army surgeon that says, Dennis Green has been laboring under a complaint occasioned by a musket shot, which still remains in his body that he received at Lexington, North America, and is so reduced in body that it does not seem probable he will recover and will not by labor be able to provide a maintenance for himself. He was wounded by a musket ball on the very first day of the war on April 19th, 1775, and the bullet stuck inside of him and he wasn't discharged from the army until eight years later after the whole American Revolution. So he carried this bullet that he got the first day of the war around with him for the entire rest of the war and probably for the entire rest of his life. So even though this soldier left the army, the military service never left him. He carried around with it for the rest of his life. And many British soldiers did this kind of thing. They were career soldiers. They volunteered to serve in the army. They got caught up in a war in America, which they may or may not have believed in. And they remained soldiers for the rest of their lives. This is the kind of people this book is about. If you're interested in getting the book, here's the cover. You can order it from any major retailer, but I always recommend that people buy books from local independent bookstores. If they don't have it, tell them to order it, please because that's the best way to support the publishers. It's the best way to support the authors. For this particular book, if you're interested in getting a signed copy, there's a web page just for ordering a signed copy of it from my local independent bookstore here in Providence, Rhode Island. If you like these little stories about British soldiers, I have a blog that has a lot of, that has profiles of individual British soldiers on it. Uh, my email address is here if you want to contact me. And I'm the editor of a publication called Journal of the American Revolution, which is allthingsliberty.com. I'm going to ask the moderators if I can leave this shared screen up just for like maybe five minutes if people want to write this material down while we start doing the questions and answers. So if you have any questions, please write them in the Q&A chat, and I hope we can get to as many as possible. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Don. Yes, please leave the screen up um, for as long as we think is appropriate. Um, I definitely want to make sure everyone gets all of that information. Um, we got lots of great questions, so I'm just going to get right into it and I'll get to as many as I can. Um, our first one is, did any of these noble volunteers stay in the United States after 1783? Oh, yes, some of them did. It's impossible to give a really precise figure but my estimate is on the order of 5%, which would work out to somewhere between two and 3,000 men. The book has examples in the closing chapters about individuals who did stay in the United States and some of their circumstances. And I have another book called British Soldiers American War that has several others who stayed in America after the war. So yeah, some definitely did. Very good. Um, were they, was there any stigma about uh, being a British soldier and uh, then living in America? Funny you should ask that. Again, I, much as I hate to recommend one of my own books, <laughs> if you look in my book called British Soldiers American War, there's a memoir of a man who was in fact somewhat stigmatized. He said that he stayed in America. Um, under curious circumstances, he remained in America after the war. It wasn't a cut and dry case of saying, oh, I support American liberty or anything like that. And then gradually over the years, he, while America was becoming more and more American, he sort of stayed more and more British. And eventually, eventually he got into a big argument with one of his own sons about this and ended up shooting and killing his own son. So at the age of 82 years old, he was tried and executed for murder. But before he was executed, he wrote out a, a memoir which recorded information about his service in the army and why he stayed in America and what his life was like after that. So for some men, there was a stigma, but for others, there does not seem to have been. Again, I don't like to make blanket statements because every person's life was different. Some men really embraced life in America and the American cause of liberties, other not so much. Great. Um, I have a few questions about impressment. So uh, you mentioned that the numbers of impressed soldiers were very, very small. Um, why did they use it at all? 
then? If it That's a great question. Why use impressment at all, especially if it went as badly as it did? And the main reason for institute, the actual stated reason for putting the Press Act in place was as an incentive to spur voluntary enlistment. If you're able-bodied and don't already have a job or something else to be doing, we're gonna set up this system where under the right circumstances, you could be forced to serve in the army. But if you enlist voluntarily, you can choose which regiment, which branch of the service you go into, and that will influence where you go. But if you get pressed into the army, the army makes all these decisions for you. So the main reason to do it was to try to encourage more people to enlist voluntarily, knowing that if they didn't do so, they were subject to the possibility of being pressed. Very much like has still been done with the draft system by the US Army much more recently. That's a good segue. My next question is, um, how different is impressment from the draft in the United States? You know, I haven't actually tried to compare the two of them, but the, the draft system works where everybody of a certain class or category gets drawn into the service on a certain date. Whereas with impressment, it's much more arbitrary. The press, I'm gonna call them press gangs. That's really a Navy term, not an army term. But um, officers who are allowed to press people into the army can go to certain places at certain times and look for men who don't have any other good accounting for themselves. They don't have a job. They seem to be able-bodied, but they don't have anything. They don't seem to be doing anything good for their nation. So the military officers and say, well, you're gonna do what we tell you to do for the army. So the press act is more arbitrary than a formal draft, but it's still a type of conscription. Then again, the book has detailed descriptions in it about the press act and how it worked and when it was effective and what have you. Okay, great. Um, so could most of the British soldiers um, read and write at the time they joined the army? Great question. Could most of them read and write? The, the book talks a lot about literacy in the army. And there's a challenge with understanding literacy because we don't have, there were no military documents recorded at the time that explicitly said whether men were literate or not. What we do have are documents that men signed. So they either wrote their name or they put their mark with an X. Now there's a lot of debate about whether the ability to sign your name constitutes literacy or not. But if you decide that it does, then you find by looking at large samples of these documents that bear signatures that about 55% of the soldiers could in fact sign their own names. Whether that means they could all read or write well, that's a different question. And again, I talk a lot about it in the book. Um, awesome. Um, what else do we have? Sorry, there's so many good questions. I want to make sure I get a little bit of everything. Okay. Um, so were uh, the land grants that soldiers were promised, was that land located in England or in America? Oh, great question. The intention with land grants was to try to encourage settlement in colonies. So. At the time the law was put into effect, the recruiting law that said, if you enlist in the army, what, now that a war has started, if you join the army, once the war ends, we'll give you a land grant in the American colonies. And the thinking at the time was certainly, yeah, that's probably gonna be in Virginia or Pennsylvania or New York. Well, when the war ended, the options were a little different. So the land grants end up being in today's Ontario for most loyalist soldiers or in Nova Scotia for most British regular soldiers. Well, if you're a young Scottish farm worker tilling rocky soil in terrible weather for, on somebody else's land, and then you end up joining the army to get your land grant and you end up with 100 acres in Nova Scotia, you can still till rocky soil in lousy weather, but at least it's your land and not somebody else's land. <laughs> so land grants ended up for the British soldiers being mostly in Nova Scotia, but a lot of them were okay with that. <laughs> okay, great. Um, what was just 
generally, um, what opinions did the British soldiers have of their uh, the Hessian soldiers? Okay, the, the, the way the question is phrased is one that's always challenging because when you say, what opinion did British soldiers have of anything? To answer that, I would need to have a lot of British soldiers who wrote down what their opinions were on things. And hardly any of them did. So I'm left not being able to answer the question well because I don't want to guess what men thought and felt. And most of the things British soldiers wrote were just very mechanical. They, didn't, they wrote, I did this, we went here, I had that experience, but they didn't write, here's what I thought about something. There are a number of British officers who wrote about what they thought about Hessians. And I have that kind of information on my bookshelf, but I don't have it on the top of my head. So, and I can tell you right away that not a single British soldier wrote about what he thought about the Hessians. So unfortunately, I can't give you a good answer to that question. Understood, I but get I that. I did sort of telling you how I approach answering questions like that, though. I only want to tell you what somebody thought. If I have it written down, here's what I thought. As a very good historian would. Um, Okay, few more really quickly. Um, what was different about how the British prepared soldiers uh, for war during peacetime versus the onset of the war? Okay, that's a great question. Again, the, I actually have chapters in the book devoted to the answer to this question, so it's hard to give a real summary. But in times of peace, in general, when you joined a regiment, you were enlisted by a recruiting party, and the recruiting party could be anywhere in England. During this time period, for the most part, British regiments didn't recruit from particular regions. So we think of British regiments as being the Cheshire Regiment and the Nottinghamshire Regiment and all that. Well, those titles didn't come till later. So you might get recruited anywhere. You spend a little bit of time with your recruiting party, and you immediately start being trained on things like personal hygiene and how to walk with a soldierly bearing, maybe basic things about marching. And then at some point, you get sent to your regiment, which is liable to be, you might get recruited in Northern England and your regiments in Ireland or get recruited in Scotland and your regiment is in Southern England. And once you join the regiment, you go into a detailed regimen of being taught how to march and eventually how to carry a gun and all those things. That's in peacetime. So in general, in peacetime, you get recruited and you get sent to your regiment fairly soon. During times of war, a lot more regiments are overseas. So it's not practical to take a new recruit and send them there. So during wartime, we have a bunch of, of locations called depots. Still get recruited by a recruiting party. You spend some time with it, but then you get sent to the depot, which is in Chatham Barracks or Plymouth Dock or Cork in Ireland. And at the depot, recruits from all over Great Britain are coming and being joined together and being taught, again, within their own regiments. We have all these little clusters of recruits marching around and being taught finer details of soldiering. Finally, once or twice a year, a convoy sets out carrying a whole load of recruits over to America. So you're liable to spend anywhere from six months to two years in Great Britain as a recruit training before you get sent to America to join your regiment. That's one of the key differences. There's other nuances. And again, we go into a lot more detail about it in the book. Great. And then this is going to be the last question. Um, if you could dine with anyone at Francis Tavern, um, dead or alive, who would you choose? Well, I choose a live person over a dead one just because it's be much more interesting conversation if they're alive. But I would choose to get um, British soldiers dined in a group called a mess group. And we still use this term today a lot, but it's a group of five soldiers who get issued food together as a group. And I would get a mess group from an average British regiment and just chat with those five common soldiers and, and ask them things like what their opinions were on things because none of them wrote down their opinions. I would ask how they spent their free time. I would ask what they thought about. I would listen to them converse with each other because this is the aspects of the texture of their lives that 
is largely completely lost. You know, we don't really know what these people felt like and how they behaved on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's what I'd want to know. And they would probably be most interested in the food <laughs> because they're eating in a tavern instead of in their camp. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Don. That was a wonderful presentation. Uh, right, I, saw wonderf I saw a bunch of wonderful questions come in. So I hope everybody purchased the book. It looks very interesting. And thank you, Allie, for facilitating the Q&A tonight. And thank you all again for joining us. If you enjoyed tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date with all of our other programming, you can join our mailing list by going to francistavernmuseum.org. There you can also find social media accounts as well as the calendar of upcoming programs. Our next lecture is going to be on April 28th. Thank you for those who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the American Revolution era with the public. If you would like to make a donation, you can also do that on our website, francistavernmuseum.org. Thank you again for joining us at another museum lecture, and we hope to see you again soon. Good night, everybody. Thank you.